Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. If you purchase the complete collection before October 24th, you can get a big discount. Check your inbox for an email from carl at pwop.com for the code, or just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are in Atlanta today. We are not. (laughs) Yeah, but we're so far away from the main convention center. (laughs) We might as well be in Atlanta. We're in Atlanta. We're actually in Orlando, of course. (laughs) But uh, we're at Ignite. It's just so big here. Yeah. No, we've ever, you know, back in the old tech ed days when it was only 15,000 people as to what the 25,000 they have. Right. We would just use the North and South Concourses. Right. And that, that was far enough. It's right. a good couple of mile walk from the South Concourse to the North Concourse. Right. But now, now we're in the West. West Concourse. But we're in the northernmost tip of it. Yeah. So it's, it's like a different time zone. Yeah, exactly. But I'm happy. It's yeah, quiet. We, it's, we have a quiet room. It's a great location. It's a fun place. Uh, it's obviously a great conference and we're learning a lot. And uh, we have some great people here to talk to. But before we do that, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? I've got a JSON generator. Do you? Yeah. Do I really want to generate my JSON? Oh, yeah, sometimes. Because, you know, it's fine to have a a record or something, like some test records that you have. But generating a lot of test records, you know, to do some proper testing is kind of, you know, tedious. Sure. So, this is a nice little tool at JSON-generator.com. What an obscure name. It is amazingly obscure. <laughs> Nobody would ever find it with the Googles and Bings. Um, but it's just a little function that how many repeats do you want? And here's what I have and some GUIDs and IDs and whatever. And nice. it just generates this crazy data. That's really cool. Yeah. That's useful, actually. It's very useful. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah. So, and it is what it is. There's not much to say about it. It just uh, generates data. Cool. In JSON format. So, shred away json-generator.com. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, interesting you should mention Atlanta, because I grabbed a comment off of show 1359, and that is the one we did at Ignite in Atlanta last year. Right. So October 2016. Yep. Uh, with uh, Lindsay Allen, when we talked about hybrid transactional analytical processing on SQL 2016. Blew my mind. And she's just amazing. Yeah, she was. And there's a few different comments here, and many of them are long and, and, and bizarre, but I have a favorite. Because one of the things we talked about was the sort of top-of-the-line machine for doing that stuff with, mm. as you recall, 24 terabytes of RAM. That's right. And so <laughs> Jay Janatharathan says, who makes an Intel box that can hold 24 terabytes of RAM? Yeah. And then answered his own question like 15 minutes later with, oh, it's Hewlett Packard. Oh. <laughs> and gave his specs to a machine. And I went and looked at the specs for the machine. Now remember, 24 terabytes of RAM. Yeah. DIMMs only get so big. Right. That machine has 384 dim slots in it. How many time zones does it take up? <laughs> well, if you have to count out all the RAM yourself, <laughs> all of them. That's pretty crazy. But, you know, the old line I remember from SQL Server back in the day when folks said, how much memory should I have for SQL Server? And the answer was- How much have you got? More. <laughs> you want more. But 384 dim slots- 
too much. <laughs> it should stop. Unless, you know. <laughs> well, he's like, just put your whole database in memory, man. You got yeah. 24 terabytes of RAM. It's just the lines between RAM and storage are getting so blurred well, these days. Well, especially this thing. Yeah. I don't even want to think about the price tag. Like, it's, yeah. it's catastrophic. But, Jay, you gave us a good laugh. So, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We shred them for your protection. Nice. Okay, let's introduce the real talent in the room, Kevin Kanan and Eric Kang. Kevin is a senior software engineer for Microsoft. He's been one of the lead developers on SQL Server tooling for the last six years. SSDT, database DevOps, and now the all-new multi-OS tools such as the VS Code MS SQL extension. He's eager to learn how you work with data and how Microsoft can make your day-to-day -day job better. Uh, Eric Kang is a Senior Program Manager in Data Platforms at Microsoft. The key focus areas are SQL Server tools and developer experiences, including SQL Server data tools in Visual Studio, continuous integration and deployment solutions, and multi-OS tooling experience, such as the MS SQL extension for Visual Studio Code. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you. Well, where do we start? Uh, Let's start with the extension, because this is cool, and I did not hear about it. So Yes, we all love VS Code, nice lightweight way to, bit to write code and so forth, and now I can talk to SQL Server directly with it? What are you doing? So, uh, we actually released this back in November of last year, and oh, okay. we went GA with it um, four or five months ago now. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. been really successful, and it's, it's, in the spirit of Visual Studio Code, a very simple extension. Brings full SQL IntelliSense uh, type ahead, and the ability to explore your database using go-to-definition and peak-definition. Mm -hmm. So, if you're writing a stored procedure, you're inserting into a table, you can actually just go to definition and see what that table looks like. Nice. Uh, gives you query execution which opens up in a nice new window and, and gives you full, you know, very rich table uh, support there and the ability to extract your data. So if you do want to get JSON data out, we have yeah. export to JSON supported built in along with export to CSV and export to Excel. The last thing to mention, I guess, about it would be that it's fully open source. So mm. export to Excel was a user contributed feature to the tool, which oh, was that's really cool. great to get. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got, uh, I think, over 400,000 downloads so far. Nice. It's, uh, if you go to the extensions tab in Visual Studio Code and type in MS SQL, it's there for you to use. And uh, we just presented a little bit on it earlier today. So, mm. so we really love the uh, Visual Studio Code extension. Right. Yeah, that's and great. I'm going to hear the, uh, the fun story around the how it started. Sure. Yeah. So Visual Studio Code was uh, kind of gaining the popularity last year. Uh -huh. And uh, Kevin, myself, and uh, Ken Van Haining, which is uh, one of our engineering manager and the Sanjay Nagamangalam. Okay. We were uh, in a trip to a SQL Bits in the uh, UK. On the way back, Sanjay was programming uh, Visual Studio Code extension <laughs> for MS SQL, MS SQL, right? Connection and stuff like that. And then he published it after like uh, working on three weeks. <laughs> and that was the starting. And then he throw it to us and say that, okay, productize it. Yeah. <laughs> so Great. that was the kind of starting of the, uh, the MS SQL extension. And several months later, we, <laughs> we, we managed to do better than his, his quickly put together prototype. He did a great one, uh, but then we, we made it a little bit prettier and most importantly brought in the full IntelliSense and yeah. brought most of our tooling uh, that underlies it cross-platform so that they would all work on Mac and Linux just as well as they so do on Windows. So just, just to recap sort of what Visual Studio Code is and what it isn't, you know, this is what you're going to use for 
uh, web development mostly, right? Um, JavaScript and using JavaScript frameworks and then doing stuff on the back end. I like what a, you, what, yeah. we don't, we didn't have any kind of database access in Visual Studio Code before this. Right. That is correct. And, uh, Visual Studio Code is editor, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. uh, uh, unlike ID, heavy IDE, Visual Studio Code, uh, kind of aims at developers who prefers to have an excellent editor mm. and great runtime. Right. So a VS Code editor is kind of, you know, fitting for that, uh, the target audience. Right. And uh, they can do, because it's an editor, you can bring in any type of coding there, like sure, a JavaScript yeah. Yeah. and PowerShell, PowerShell and anything. Right? Well, I've seen some guys who are big Python fans who like coding yeah. in VS Code just because the, the, the IntelliSense color coding, like that yeah. whole fact, it's a very nice environment so, to edit so, in. So what it doesn't do, right? Debugging and attaching to compilers or does it? It does it. Not not for SQL Server. Not for SQL Server and maybe for C Sharp, yeah. but where? Oh, so for C Sharp and most of the other tools, you can definitely have a debugger. C Sharp, mm -hmm. okay. Python, Angular, TypeScript, they all have full debugging. I mean, you can now. That. It's They keep adding to it. The okay. original yeah, version yeah. didn't have all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. The other thing that I love in it is the PowerShell integration. So it's actually got really rich integration with the integrated terminal. And so uh, if you used to use the PowerShell ISE, uh, I just think that what they've done in VS Code just blows it away. So much nicer to work it's, in. It's mm -hmm. really nice. It's amazing. So, to what do point so. do Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code overlap here? I guess are they marching toward the same thing, or are we just trying to make VS Code as lightweight as possible? What's the what's the strategy? I see. That is something that uh, we probably cannot answer correctly. Sure, yeah. It is probably something that the the DevDiv and Visual Studio yeah. kind of guys should answer. But right. uh, but the, I mean, Visual Studio seems like the Swiss Army knife, right? Uh, that has every feature that you could possibly want as a developer in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's also great for if you're doing kind of rich application development, you want to be able to see your UI, preview it, you want to have some of the really advanced debugger technologies that you've got there. So yeah, it, yeah. it goes deeper into everything. But the beauty of Visual Studio Code is if you want something just very quick, right. especially, hey, you don't even, you want to debug on a machine that you don't already have it installed, yeah. you can download it in a second, yeah, get, get it, it running, yeah. and get it done. But SQL Server Management Studio has been using the Visual Studio shell for right. ever. Mm -hmm. you know, it's been mm -hmm. it's been a decade, I think. Like I've been using that program for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. More than decades. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now I I remember what, what was it Everett? I'm remembering code names. That's how old I am. Yukon. <laughs> was it well you yeah, right the Yukon. SQL Server Yukon used <laughs> oh, the yeah. Everett build of Studio Shell. Right. Yeah. That's when that came. Okay. That's two code names. That's ridiculous. Uh, what was that? Four old guys talk. <laughs> yeah, the code names of the code names of the products. But uh, and I love hearing you talk about PowerShell because I'm used to the SQL folks focusing either on DML or mm. the studio uh, the studio environment. Well, we, we've really embraced PowerShell. We've actually released, so the SQL Server has had a set of PowerShell commandlets for mm -hmm. quite a while, and it used to be that you had to install the server to get these PowerShell commandlets. Mm -hmm. We then evolved it to you had to install SSMS to get them, but we finally embraced modernity, and they are now available on the PowerShell gallery hmm. standalone. Yay! We, uh, yay! Yeah. <laughs> we just had an MVP asking us to remind people of this, so it's a perfect chance to do so. Well, I'll uh, put it in the show notes <laughs> right away. It's like, here you go. Yeah. SQL Server and again, uh, just to start plugging some of the other things, it's great then for automation, for continuous integration and deployment, because they have a very rich set of things you can do with right. SQL Server and those commandlets. And uh, and so they're really good to try it. So now, um, and if, if .NET is available in Visual Studio Code, is it? Or is it just .NET some... Core. .NET mm -hmm. Core is. Entity Framework runs there. Mm -hmm. So... 
where do these things overlap? If I'm using Entity Framework to access data, uh, are the is the uh, the plugin going to allow me to do more management? Is that the idea? Or mm, I see. So Visual Studio Code is more like a, a editor, yeah, mm -hmm. right. And uh, let's just uh, you know uh, uh, keep it there. Mm -hmm. And if I go to Visual Studio Code, then it has a a lot more like uh, uh, assisting helper. Features. Visual Studio does. Visual Studio does. Right. It has a, yes. a graphical uh, visualization of your server structures and yeah. folder structure. And if you want to do certain tasks, then it kind of provides you more UI-driven guidance so mm -hmm. that, that you can finish a, a, compl a complex task much easier, mm -hmm. right? If you go to editor-based, then, then the, you're kind of you know, code-savvy. You sure, do yeah. it. You can do it by yourself by writing code, right? So there is a kind of difference in that perspective. The SQL Server data tools, are they uh, an add-in to Studio? So there's a interesting uh, stories there on SQL Server data tools. Mm -hmm. So the core database support in terms of database projects, uh, the ability to connect to SQL Server online and do all of the online basic tasks against right. relational databases, that's all built into Visual Studio. Built it's into Studio, yeah. Been there since uh, built in since Visual Studio 2012, uh, and with 2017, it's all actually just part of the core Visual Studio. So whenever you just update Visual Studio with these new uh, foundational updates, etc., you just get the latest SSDT in there automatically. Right. In addition to that, we do have a set of uh, BI business intelligence projects uh, for analysis services, reporting services, mm. and integration services. So for those, uh, they've also evolved. So analysis services and reporting services are just extensions on the gallery if you want them. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have a new in-preview SQL Server 2017, a kind of unified installer that brings everything together. Huh. So what that's really great for is uh, for SQL Server, there's a number of people who just don't want to deal with a Visual Studio uh, license or community, uh, they often yeah. put it in a server behind a firewall. Right. Right. So for them, they just want all of the kind of SQL tools bundled together. Yeah. That installer brings all of those together and importantly has integration services, which because it's integration, it has so many connectors and, and things that it can do that mm. it kind of needs extra stuff that you couldn't put on a, an Got extension it. in the gallery. Uh, so that's been released in preview. It's going towards GA, kind of marching towards that. Uh, but all of the pieces that aren't integration services are fully supported and GA today in, in uh, Visual Studio 2017. Now, my experience with integration services has been around data analytics. Like, this was my ETL tool, the yep. way to pull mm -hmm. in not just data from SQL mm -hmm. Server, but from lots of different mm -hmm. sources, mm -hmm. and even stage it in SQL Server before I turn around and make OLAP cubes and things mm -hmm. out of yep. it. Is that still what we're about when we talk about SSIS? ETL is the main, uh, the main purpose of job, the data, uh, right. integration services. I mean, and I've, I've used it as a dev for importing data, where yep. it's, you know, time to pull data from different sources, maybe for a one-time thing to get a new database set up, mm -hmm. as well as the, the repeatable ETL. Okay, we're going to get this file once a day, and we're going to pump it into the system. Right. Yeah, and a couple of things there. I think uh, SSIS is available now for SQL Server on Linux, right? I think it runs there, as far as I know. Uh, which is great. So it's been marching towards the future as well. That's uh, awesome. Which is great. And also with all of the SSDT tools, they now work on multiple versions of SQL Server. So if you're trying to do an ETL to get your stuff from previous versions up, it's a lot easier now. And you don't kind of need to figure out this matrix of which Visual Studio version to get. Just mm -hmm. get the latest and it will work with at least back to 2012. Okay. For our database tools all the way back to 2008 officially and 2005 unofficially. So. And if you're still running SQL 2005, you really have to stop. Yeah, you're out of support. Please yeah. upgrade. <laughs> well, I think it's one of the interesting problems, and I, I run into it all the time in the consulting role. It's like, if I have an application that works against the database, I am really not inclined to change it. 
<laughs> you just want to leave it alone, have it keep doing its thing. And, and, uh, it, and so I find coming into some organizations, 2005, 2000, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. 2008s, and uh, you can't make an easy case for moving that. It has worked reliably for a decade. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like very challenging to say you are at risk. You know, this is these machines, these things are out of support, uh, especially if they're running in VMs. It's like the hardware gets replaced all the time. That's actually a good point. For example, uh, if you use the SSDT and they kept your database in source code, yep. then uh, later on, no matter what version that uh, you know will evolve into, you could actually create your database again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, I, I've actually seen the customers who not only uh, uh, not upgrading, but they lost everything. They only have the, the binary right. only, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And then the target database. So if they lose it and there's a bug, there's no way to, fix, no way it to fix it anymore, yeah. right? So that's a good practice to move everything onto source control. Well, this when we get into the whole conversation around the sort of DevOps cycle, where I really want a package that version three of this app mm-hmm. runs, you know, with this particular version of a database. Mm-hmm. I find it very common that folks just don't have the database in there. The database is another piece of voodoo right. that lives elsewhere, right. and you can't revert. Yeah, I can't. I can't light up an old version of XYZ app because it. I don't have that database anymore. So. It, can you talk through the workflow of what it means to actually have a database in source control? Because mm-hmm. I'm betting it's not the data. <laughs> That's right. my guess. Right. So uh, we call it state-based database development. So it's a really simple. If you think about your application development, how it uh, goes. First, you have a source code. And you build it. And then you have a binary. Uh, the deployment is just the installing onto, uh, let's say, OS. Mm-hmm. Production machines. Right. So next version comes. And instead of uh, uh, modifying the binary that is already running on the Windows OS, you change your source code, build it, and deploy a new version to the, uh, the OS. Right. Either it replaces it or it patches it. It writes right? over it. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, the database, as you mentioned, so far, the system of truth is the database. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is like uh, the app binary that is running on OS. Mm-hmm. Right? It's exactly the same concept. So the SSDT's state-based database concept is that keep it exactly the same as how you develop application. So instead of uh, directly modifying your database, you keep your database definition or the table definition and store procedure as your source code mm-hmm. in source control, Yeah, build it, right? And then it produces something called a DACPAC. It's like right. a, a library or the definition of your database. And then you deploy to your, your SQL Server instance, then it creates database, upgrades your database, and change your database. So what if you've got, like Richard says, lots of data, you know, mm-hmm. that you're that you're working with? Maybe it was generated by some JSON generator. I don't know who would do that, but nobody would do that. Yeah. So you're you're working against a database that has to have the data along with it. Are we gonna, you know, is there is there such an idea of sort of incremental changes or you know, or we're using this set of data? Uh, versus that one, and oh, the difference from this version to that version is only a few records or a few changes. Do you know what I'm saying? Is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there is a two parts in database. One is a schema a version mm-hmm. and data, right? So the SSDT, its main function is maintaining the schema. Right. Of course, when the, the new schema is being deployed and that there has to be some uh, data arrangement or movement, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. SSDT does it automatically for you. 
Otherwise, you have to write a long script to do those sure. main uh, data management. Well, this is what we used to do, right? right. Yeah, that's right. And my job responsible on the data side of an application was to write that change script. That's right. You know, and problem number one was what version of the database <laughs> are we on? Because <laughs> right. there's no concept of version right. there. Right. But then you'd, you'd write this crazy script that would make all the changes for the what version you need to name the version. name was the date right. it changed. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, how it works is the same. Just the SSTT produces those change script instead of you have to write down those change script by yourself. So you maintain a copy of the schema as a source code and it'll just compare the schema you want to the schema that's on the database. Right. Yeah. And depending on who you are, you may want to just for performance reasons, pre-generate this because, you know, what we do that by comparison, it can take a little time. Sure. So, you know, for many people, they'll just run that comparison offline, compare even just from check out the two versions from source control, do yep. a comparison on the fly, then pre-build your scripts and just make sure it works. Because so you can look at it. You can mm -hmm. look at it, you can verify it, you can run it in staging, ideally using, right. you know, um, VSTS or these other services to run all of these things automatically for you. And then you make sure, hey, this thing doesn't take more than, you know, a few seconds to do an update. Because nice. occasionally, just uh, we'll do what you tell us. But yeah. if, if you decide to tell us to do something very silly, we'll still try and do it. So that's where it's good to have these things go through yeah. from dev to staging and actually make sure an upgrade against real data yeah. right. kind of works where it's like with large tables, you aren't doing something crazy. And we're making it sound easy, right? Because in reality, you have things like, oh, we added an index to this table. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the table's got data in it now. Yeah. And uh, how do we do that? But so they, right now, uh, the, it's a real customer story. Yeah. And uh, they have a uh, hundred of small applications mm -hmm. for customers and they have 20 central databases, right? Mm. Before, uh, DBA had to manage all those small databases wow. plus 20 central. So what they uh, did was that they adopted SSTT state-based mm. and then those um, small app development fully automated through SSTT CI/CD. So uh, developers of those small uh, application plus small DB can fully utilize those uh, SSTTs automatically generated the, uh, uh, the change management yeah. all that. Mm. And then uh, DBAs can focus on those important mission critical 20 large databases. Right. Right. Then it's a big saving. Don't have to apply SSTT across whole organization. Right. You can pick and choose yeah. what is right for your, uh, the, the scenario mm -hmm. and apply that in, a, uh, in that nicely. Awesome. Very good. And, uh, hold that thought, Eric, while we take just a minute to hear a word from our sponsors. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at JetBrains. Hey, how often do you profile memory usage in your .NET apps? What if you could automate memory usage checks so that they're executed every time you commit a change? You can actually do that with .MemoryUnit from JetBrains. .MemoryUnit is a free unit testing framework for monitoring .NET memory usage. You write unit tests that check your code for all kinds of memory issues, and then run the tests on your machine or in a continuous integration server like TeamCity or VSTS, just like you do with regular unit tests. You can track how much memory is allocated, check memory for objects of a specific type to prevent memory leaks, or compare several memory snapshots in a unit test to see if memory usage is creeping up. Learn more and download .memoryunit from jetbrains.netrocks.com or just search for a package called .memoryunit on the NuGet gallery. And we're back. You're listening to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here at Ignite with Kevin Kanan and Eric Kang. We're talking about the challenges around data 
versioning and all of that stuff and how some of your tools are addressing those problems. Let's pick a hard scenario. Mm -hmm. So the version one of this database has a name field and version two is going to split it in the first name and last name. Oh, why would you do? Who would do that? First of all, yes, not that that would ever happen, <laughs> but imagine this happening because now I'm going to, I'm replacing what was one column well with two columns, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, I, the whole strength of the, uh, the, the, this data tool things is because you're going to generate scripts for me. I should be able to go both ways. And this seems like a very one way thing that mm -hmm. I'm going to, you're now going to generate a routine that will actually give me those two columns. How are they going to get populated? Okay, well, that is, you've done a great job. That's one of the hardest scenarios. Yeah, have. sure. <laughs> I wouldn't pick an easy one. But let, let's talk about how you might actually want to do this anyways as, as a developer. The first sure. thing, you, if you want to try and do that and make it uh, work automatically, I would recommend that you just add those two columns in first off. Just add them in, don't drop name, and then deploy your schema changes with that and right. do a migration of the data kind of as an offline part that's separate from the schema. So you actually start, write a store procedure that will go through it all and run all of the logic to actually move your data over right, for you. Separate the names. Separate the names, do it, and leave the other one there yeah. for a while until you've gone probably major version up, at which point you can drop it and run your next version to actually go and uh, when you have finally a, drop it. So yeah. when you have a certain, you're never going to revert. Exactly. And this gets into, and we've had this conversation a number of times on the show, that in the continuous deployment mindset, there is the, the role of the database in that has a pre-stage and a post-stage. Mm -hmm. So before we update code, we make modifications to the database to stage four changes, and we might populate columns, like there's any number of things we might do there. Then the code goes through its update process, and the, and it should be, the new version should be functional with the database in sort of a temporary state of some of the stuff from the previous version with the stuff with this new version. And only after you're confident for some amount of time, you do the post-stage that removes the debris of the transition. That's correct. And and you will need to be careful with that because we, by default, will not drop anything for you. If we're no, going to drop that's user data, answer. we warn. So then you'll have to run essentially a script uh, which specifically says, hey, by the way, name is gone and we're going to put a special checkbox saying, yeah, and we know this is going to lose data. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <We're sure. laughs> yeah, uh, but it is one of the common problems. And so we solve most of it for you, but then that good design patterns and practices that you learn yourself is really important too. Well, and also, aren't you developing along with the data, right? I mean, you're, you're, hopefully you're not doing this in production. Do you, do you know of anybody who splits a column into two during a production in, in a production environment? Well, I mean, they'll get to test it first, but at some point production has to reflect the new version, right? right. So you want to know what's going on, but. So there I, has to be a script in there, obviously to change the data, yes. et cetera. Yeah. But I do think, you know, the, the reality is when you're fully cleaned up, it's virtually impossible to revert. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah. I, I, I picked a horrible scenario, I admit it. And if you're doing <laughs> this, like rule number one, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but how many times have I run into a scenario where the domain expert has told me up and down and sideways, yeah. one salesperson per, per sale item. And right. then one day there's two. Mm -hmm. And we have a fundamental mistake in the data design mm. that's going to mm -hmm. create new tables and split stuff off and remove things from one table to move to another. Like this happens. Yep. And mm -hmm. so from my experience, I'm again, an old DT guy from the early versions and it's no wonder DBAs are so cranky. Yeah, but mm -hmm. we exercised mm -hmm. the tool. I came up with all the worst scenarios I could and I ran it. And the one thing I learned over and over again every time I ran it, it never damaged data. It would stop before it would damage data. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. what you just have to have the personal confidence to believe that this tool is not going to do 
irreparable harm. The only person in the room that does irreparable harm is you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's easy to do just right there on thing. But, you know, that's sort of the reality that you've got to practice with tool to have this confidence to it. Write the where clause first. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Yeah. Everything's a select statement <laughs> for a long time. Yes, write a select before you write the drop. <laughs> please, 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 please. And the good thing that SST does is that if it knows, if it detects something that SSDT cannot handle correctly, then it stops the process. Right. So it's a validation process. Mm-hmm. And then the, if there's any chance that there is a possible data loss, then uh, we just stop there. Right. So that's data protection. So, and this is how when the robots take over the world, they won't screw up our data. That's right. The data will just keep migrating. <laughs> the migrating, data will just migrating, keep. Migrating. Yeah. Um, getting into some more subtleties around this, and I'm just putting my old grumpy DBA hat on. It's amazing I still have this much hair. Uh, <laughs> what do you do when you're making substantial data? Sh- what does the tool do? Not you. I'm not going to blame you, Kevin. Um, what does the tool do when you're making substantial data structure changes in terms of things like indexes? You know, here I've got a that was big, my bad example. Big, big, big heavyweight table. We're going to make some substantial changes that have an impact on, on index structure. Like when I was doing that stuff by hand, I would drop those indexes, make the changes, rebuild the index. By by the way, if you've got a big table, that's you're going to wait a while. Yeah, it's big index, but yeah. it's. I think that's faster than when you're making modifications. You're also having to modify all the indexes at the same time. Yeah, usually what we'll do, so the tool by default will, especially if there's any indexes referencing stuff that would especially stop you making the schema change, Mm -hmm. it will drop them and then it will rebuild them afterwards. Right. Uh, By default right now, we don't do it with the online option on because there can be some subtleties using that with transactions. We've actually got though a set of contributors uh, on GitHub that you can add to do that kind of extra fancy stuff. Hmm. Like if you want to do an online rebuild and the nice thing with that is it won't, it will just continue on as if it had completed the rebuild and let you, you know, keep using it and then the rebuild will happen over time. Mm. So it depends on if you want that or not. Uh, I think that's, it's pretty useful that way, but by default it will just wait, it will drop it and it'll wait afterwards till it's rebuilt. Which is kind of the fastest way to go about things too. But you said the online option. Mm -hmm. What's the online (laughs) option? Oh, I see. So uh, uh, what happened is that uh, when that, uh, the, index rebuild happens, then the table gets locked. Right. So while, it, while it's uh, uh, being processed, of course. nobody can actually uh, uh, do any action on the table. Mm-hmm. So online means that uh, it's uh, online and then you can uh, rebuild the operation on that part. So it just continues in the background. You've executed yeah. the query to say, hey, make sure this index is there. Right. And it will just do it. And if it takes a few hours, it will eventually just be completed. And in the meantime, you can continue using the table. Mm-hmm. The benefits of the index may not be fully there until the rebuild is completed, right. mm-hmm. but it doesn't stop you doing the other stuff. And no, it's the very good are just going to be slower. It's much better if you're trying to get low downtime in your deployment. It's very useful to use that option. Sure. Absolutely. Do you have the idea of creating a brand new database, right? And then, uh, you know, with the current snapshot and then uh, um, rebuilding the indexes, doing all the things that you need with the data, copying over what's new, and then switching your connection over to the new database. I don't know if that's something that's done. Mm, but I, I mean, uh, so that well, is a, that kind of a after the SSDT step. Yeah. Usually, what the people do is that for mission critical, people do not upgrade the production directly, right? right. So you have a pre-production yeah. staging. So the uh, the deployment of a change goes to pre-production mm-hmm. and do a sanity check there, and they do uh, uh, like a you know a catch up of any 
transaction that already occurred uh, in the production, which is not in production, uh, yeah. pre-production. They catch up the transaction and switch yep. it. Right. So that's a that's kind of a process. So there's a I little like more that, that technical term. That I <laughs> yes. So it's got a little whistle in it. <laughs> and note, SSTT does not do that, but we make it easier to get everything to the point right. where right. we want to yeah. do that. Right. So the, I mean, I do appreciate that this is not you're not trying to automate the world here. You're making a bunch of steps easier, but we still like a conscious decision about mm-hmm. a flop. You know, switching yeah. from one server to another, mm. or finding routes back, and how we synchronize data, and how we maintain you know transactional yeah. changes. These are hard there. problems. Not easy. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to split the joke column into two separate columns. Joke underscore setup and joke underscore hilarious underscore punchline. Unfortunately, we only have data for the setup. Sorry. Nice. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry, you can't have any nulls in that column. That's <laughs> <laughs> the way it is. The punchline's a null. How did that happen? <laughs> I didn't write this script. All right. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master details, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing, and you can check it out and test it free on GitHub. And learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Rich Ross. Congratulations, Rich. Yeah. And uh, Rich won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome for my friends over at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member selected at random of said fan club. And we also like to ask our guests, and I'll start with you, Kevin, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Azure credits don't count. Okay, that's a good question. <laughs> we also got very, very fancy, uh, beefy laptops recently, so I don't oh. need any technology. So I would probably get a ridiculously large screen. I don't like to have oh, yeah. two screens as much. I, I manage it, but I like to get everything I can on the biggest screen possible. What's the big one you have? I have the 43-inch 4K Dell. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. That, is, is, that is what it I It is get. amazing. And it's only about 1500 bucks. so buy three of them. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. Then I can yeah, be fully hidden behind them. It's Great. actually large enough that I'm going to put, I have to put it on a mount to slightly tilt it towards me that the top tipped in because the corners are a long way away. Mm. 43 inches yeah. is a lot of screen. But what it is is 100 DPI 4K. So you don't scale it. You right. actually wow. use every pixel. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I, it was a mach- I used to have a 30 inch with a pair of wing monitors on it that was 4960 by 1600, which was awesome. But having one monitor, 3840 by 2160, 
It's a beautiful place to be, mm. man. That sounds great. <laughs> it's curved too, right? It's not curved. Oh, it's not? No, the curved, the largest curve they make right now is a 38 and mm. it's not a full 4K resolution, mm -hmm. but I'm still eyeing one. Mm. I, I, you know, you talk about the tech you use every day. Yeah. And it's like spend money on your keyboard, spend money on your mouse, spend money on your monitor. Like those make the difference. What does that Dell use for an input? It's got DP, uh, so display port is the best one, the 1.3 display port, but uh -huh. there's a pair of HDMIs and there's a VGA and a DVI. And okay. it has an option to actually split into up to four 1080p screens. Right, yeah, I know, I love so, that. You know, one of the things I do when I'm recording run as shows is I'll actually cut out one, one quarter of that screen to feed for another machine that's my Skype channel to yep. be able to see that on the same screen with what I'm doing. Very I, cool. I do love this monitor. Like, it, <laughs> I can tell. there are monitors and there are monitors. <laughs> and, and we've heard on .NET Rocks about this monitor probably way too many yeah. times, but <laughs> so we're sorry about that. But Eric, it's your turn. What would you do with 5,000? Right. Recently, I watched the YouTube and then I saw that like a 12, a 13-year-old uh, kids were making yeah. a supercomputer by putting together a Raspberry Pi. Yes. Wow. That was fantastic. And doing probably like computing on that one. Yeah, it's 30 so. bucks a shot. So you, <laughs> you can get like 150 of them yeah. for five grand. Yeah. Wow. I want to buy some uh, some PCs and then they make uh, uh, the cluster yeah. uh, for me at home. <laughs> so what what's involved in making a cluster out of Raspberry Pis? That sounds intriguing to me. Yeah, it's, it, what they did was that, that they buy that and then, then some LAN cables and they plug it together with Just a LAN switch. cables. Mm -hmm. And you need to have, have a switch, yep. right? Yeah. So one is acting as a master, the other ones are like a worker nodes. Yeah. And then the, you you actually uh, schedule the, uh, the programming, uh, the running the process on the multiple nodes in the Raspberry Pi. Mm. And uh, that was and fantastic. are they gigabit Ethernet of the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, yeah. One gig, yeah, yeah, one gig RAM. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So knowing you, Eric, you'll be installing Docker and a Kubernetes yeah. cluster <laughs> on Raspberry <laughs> Pi and getting them all as your, and so, uh, and so the, your minion nodes, as you so call them. So the software... Do, that you use for this is what? I mean, uh, that's what a uh, that's a like a compute node, and right. then you can install a Raspberryan, uh, I think, uh, Raspberry DB, a Debian yeah, 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 version yeah. of a Raspberry. But it's not like it looks like one big machine, though. Yeah, yeah. it's a small ones that you have to making it as a supercomputer. Yeah, yeah, you have to actually write code to do all the <laughs> yes, that's to right. do all the delegation. That's all right. That, yeah. That's so. right. Yeah, little flow motion studies. <laughs> or, you talk know, to <laughs> some people about parallel computing. Uh, uh, there's a .NET library that does it. And uh, we had him on .NET Rocks years, years ago. Years ago, yeah. Yeah. But uh, sorry, I can't remember it right now. I see. But Fun if act. only there were a technology we could use to search. <laughs> That's just crazy talk. <laughs> I, I know. I don't know if there's any way we could find that out. It's just, it's lost in the ether. All right. Well, yeah. you guys continue talking. I'm going to search. You're going to look for it. <laughs> drive me crazy. <laughs> it's good. You've scratched an itch now. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, I'm really excited about uh, this stuff. Obviously, it's a problem I've dealt with over and over and over again. And, and so it's, it's just interesting to think through what the modern workflow looks like for this stuff. Uh, there's also been a lot of conversation about where does SQL Server make sense and where do, it doesn't. I think a lot of .NET developers default to SQL Server because it's in the office, like it's already there. Mm -hmm. But you're also having lots of conversations about Mongo and the other kinds of stores where I know where you work, where do you fall on this conversation? How do you think about it? Mm, I see. So maybe uh, Kevin and I uh, can talk about our own you know, version, right? Sure. To each other. So NoSQL database mm -hmm. is great to, to deal with, let's say, unstructured data. Sure. So the sources, let's say, uh, the modern world is not like, uh, you know, you, you go with uh, uh, structured data, like a, you know, a table only. Mm -hmm. But uh, to do certain uh, analytics job, like uh, you know, uh, like a predicting, like a, uh, what would be uh, the key trend next summer mm -hmm. for fashion uh, industry, then it's not just a, a 
the data that is coming from table for the past five years, but now that is like a, the the weather predictions, sure. weather you know situation, all the fashion and the Twitter, Facebook, all that information needs to be put together to actually predict the future, not mm-hmm. retrospective mm. data, right? Right. So so that is the word, and it is not about the structured and non-structured. It's combined together that we can utilize all those possible data and use it. But at the end, when you do analytics, you will need to store the final result somewhere. Yes. Right? And then when we reach up to that point, structured data is uh, kind of uh, easier to deal with when you write the report and kind of stuff. So You know what the results you want are in the end. And so right. you're naturally going to apply a structure to that. But right. So at the end, it from. becomes a structured manner, right? That makes sense. To me. Also yeah. been the high value data, I guess, is the is the point. So we've seen kind of a wave. Where, yeah, we were worried for a while, honestly. It's like, oh, gosh, is the world moving to NoSQL? And then right. what happened was people learned where it was really good, like Eric mm-hmm. said, and where it really struggled. And sure. so a lot of that high value data is going to stay in, in the SQL database. Uh, one, one thing I'd just plug as well, because we like to plug our features, right? In SQL Server 2016, we added one called Polybase, which makes it much easier to connect your unstructured data uh, mm. uh, with your structured. So from inside your SQL Server, mm-hmm. you can cr- connect to a, called external tables, which is basically just saying, hey, my unstructured data pretty much looks like this and gives it a certain format. Uh, I think there's Parquet and a number of these standard formats for it. Mm. And then you can kind of pull them in and do all of your analytics on top of it. Interesting. And again, to plug some new features, especially, um, I guess, so we already have uh, .NET support in terms of store procedures, mm-hmm. but right. we've added in all of the machine learning stuff. So our nice. services and Python in SQL Server 2017 Great. are now built in. And since they run in the server, they actually run right where your data is, which makes it a lot more efficient and fast. Way back in 2005, you introduced .NET into SQL Server, mm-hmm. and the the case that I heard for where this is a good idea was that you had what was back then a large amount of data and extracting it in the form of queries to run complex code against. It was just inefficient, mm-hmm. so bring the code to the data. Yep. And so this is just expanded now. There's more languages available. Yeah, and so it's just making it so, especially for those kind of automated things, like you're going to develop it locally. You're yeah. going to write your queries and figure out here are your models and your analytics, but then you're going to run an agent job or something else to actually do that every night right. or every week and, and build up these possible. things as fast as possible. Yeah, sure. And there's huge differences there. Yeah, you just can't pull out, you know, gigabytes of data from or even terabytes from SQL Server mm. and maybe multi-terabytes, petabytes from your uh, external mm. tables. And so that's where these kind of processes are kind of really good and uh, pretty cool. By the way, I found it. It was uh, show 182 with Dan Cerulli on grid computing with a Digipede network. Wow. And that was 2006, June 2006. So if you go to digipede.net, this is a distributed computing solution delivers dramatically improved performance for real world business applications built entirely on .NET. And uh, so uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. It's you the do, that idea that <laughs> do that with your Raspberry Pis running down there. With your Raspberry Pis, man, <laughs> with a little core. That's wild. Dance that's cool. Really, that's a long time ago. The thing that's interesting to me, of course, is since 2005, since those features were first introduced, it allowed us to do this complex mm-hmm. query. Of course, the whole big data movement, the Hadoops of the world, and this whole MapReduce model, again, again, harnessing multiple machines to say, let's decompose the data across a bunch of machines, compute them individually, and then reduce that set back together. There's just so many more choices around that. Mm. But I still think there's no way around, I have a petabyte of data. I have a problem. 
right? And I really want to query it where it is with the tools I have. I really, really don't want to move it. The, yeah. the, you know, the process has gotten faster, storage has gotten bigger, but the pipes are just not that quick, mm, you know? Yeah. One gigabit, 10 gigabit. I, you know, I played with a Finiband, which will get you up to like 400 mm. gigabit, but still shipping terabytes around is not fun. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been pretty cool, and it's been great to see those kind of things get added to SQL Server 2017. I it's also so think it's, you, you know, you don't want to just incorporate a little Python in the middle of a SQL query and expect good things to happen, or <laughs> call out to a, so, you know, a call out to a web service as part of an aggregate clause. Oh, it's like, that's your foot. Who you would know? do that? Who would, it, somebody would do that. Just no, because course, you yeah. can <laughs> doesn't mean you should. Yeah, that's still the rule, right? We yep. just put that in a SQL Server advanced languages. It's your foot. Yeah. <laughs> That's correct. But for certain classes of problem, I mean, I think it's got to be an extraordinarily powerful tool yeah. for mm -hmm. really sure. walking across, you know, large amounts of data. Right? That's for sure. Yeah. And but for your regular stuff, just write your store procedures in T-SQL, write them there and make it all work really fast and, yeah. and nicely. It's Lean it out always well. the right way to go. And I, and I know we have done shows in this where we've talked about document stores saying, for, you know, for a, a, a transactional document store, it's great to just store an object that is in order and get the customer on their way. We have a copy of record there. And then behind that, some number of milliseconds later, we now do decomposition into rows and columns into a SQL server. like Some autonomous process on a background thread yeah. somewhere. Yeah. It's, they're not mutually exclusive because in the end, the nice thing about a relational database is it helps you relate data together. And mm. having it in a heap in an object store is not a happy place to do querying. And also querying for, you know, pulling out records is different for querying for a report. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have different different architectures there yeah we've yeah. seen it we've seen a lot of those i mean we, we had our demo our interns over the summer and it was amazing some of the stuff they were doing there just ingesting data into azure sql data warehouse and everything and mm -hmm. just it's it's not just hey put it in raw from wherever right. you're getting it it's no. if you got internet of things data you're going to have a a pipeline that goes through and eventually hey ingests. why does this report take two hours to build oh maybe it's the 17 joins in my select <laughs> statement <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit of consequence there. And, it, you know, and then obviously the volume of data just keeps getting larger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I did see here at Ignite was a conversation around the time series data stores, especially we talk about IoT right. stuff where, right. it, time, you know, time's not a problem when you have one source of data, but when you've got 100,000 sources mm -hmm. of data and you're trying to figure out yep. how to line all those things up. This looks like a job for John Skeet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess that's not necessarily the SQL Server. That's, that's more Azure yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it all plays nicely together, I yeah. guess, is the nice thing. Mm -hmm. And the tools are there for it. So, um, yeah, if you need to play around with Azure SQL Data Warehouse, it's supported in all our tools, which is great. And so mm -hmm. you can you can go about developing it and building up all of your schemas there as needed. Uh, you know, one of the taglines at Ignite is this whole hybrid cloud thing. So do you see your customers doing that? They have an on-premise SQL Server and they're using cloud elements where it makes sense? Like, Or the, are the two mutually exclusive? Yeah, you can be uh, somewhat future. Uh, you heard about Docker and Kubernetes. Absolutely, cluster, right? yeah, great conversation. So, so let's let's talk about. It. I, I call it Minions architecture. Minions right? architecture. Minion, minions yeah. architecture. Yeah. So it's easy to understand, right? Yeah. So we have so many Minions that is like a small containers that does a small analytics job, right? Small jobs, but there are many of them, like what we just talked about, uh, Raspberry Pi, right? Mm -hmm. And that runs on the Kubernetes cluster on your you know private cloud, right? But the data can be anything. It can be in that or it can be outside of it. Right. Right. It can be uh, running on the Metal, VM, or mm -hmm. Azure. Mm -hmm. Right. So that 
it's one uh, in a way of of looking at hybrid. Absolutely, right? a version of hybrid. Do you really want SQL Server inside of a Docker container? <laughs> that's a good question. Mm -hmm. So, for as that, a developer, I do. Yeah, as a developer, and test, yeah. that's uh, the yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked with uh, customers uh, recently, uh, and uh, you know, they use the database. I'm not just talking about the SQL Server in this case. Right. Database within the container, mm -hmm. and they say it uh, greatly boosts up dev and test the productivity right so well, they, have, they have that local instance they can work with right away they tear it up they tear it down i remember talking to dan Wallin. i think it was in amsterdam about about this and he says yeah we do that all the time it's just that all the containers point to uh files that are on the metal somewhere that are uh, yeah. ultimately mdf files right, right. and the, the database know, file. it's smart enough to know how to sure. how to deal with it well and i remember back in the day we had long conversations about yeah sure put your apps in virtual machines but you'd never put sql server <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then that you know faded away when right. the the aspect that i'm put my it hat on of mm -hmm. i don't like being hardware dependent right when i have a bare metal installation mm -hmm. the health of that gear matters a lot as soon as it's in a vm you just port the vm to another machine like let the old gear go away right. stuff's same so it makes it super easy to keep a sql 2000 instance running for decades <laughs> ask me how i know <laughs> yeah but yeah it's, it's going that way we think that the docker usage is is in a similar place right now to where vms that were early before, day yeah that's where, what it feels like to me yeah you're going to yeah. be conservative putting your production stuff in there mm -hmm. but all the way up through through test and staging you're going to be really happy because you want to tear down those environments regularly sure. you want to test out the latest well i think there's a whole class of errors that just goes away when you're mm -hmm. doing this configuration as code mindset that just allows us to have identical architecture over and over again, whether you're developing, whether you're in QA, whether you're in pre-production. And, and ultimately, I think we'll feel like that to be in production as well. The more yep. consistent those things are, the fewer problems we introduce. Mm -hmm. It also just makes it a lot easier to reproduce. I think or yep. we had it in our demo today at our talk, just reproducing an issue. If you've got the, you can just spin up your environment in yeah. seconds. You don't have to install everything onto right. your machine because right. these things just take a while. And it's yep. just literally how how quick again is your pipe? How big is your pipe? How quickly can you download it? And then mm. you've got everything ready to go. Yeah. One thing that I really like is that the, um, you know, one of the benefit is that it's a portable and uh, predictable. That means, uh, you know, uh, we often encounter, even uh, in our team, there's a bug coming in and then uh, say, oh, it's not reproducible. Right. It yeah. works yeah. fine Work, on my machine. Works on my machine. Works on my machine, right? <laughs> Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, using the Docker and then uh, those uh, container-centric uh, cluster, uh, the dev test and product environment can be identical. Yeah. yeah. So if it works on the dev machine, then the same thing works in test and in production. So it's so predictable. So yeah. that is a, one of the big benefits that I see, actually. Well, and I think, you know, the the SQL Server is one of the bastions of the those are all pets, not cattle, mm -hmm. you know, DevOps mindset that they, you know, that is the, it's in a tower, it's protected by people in white lab coats. Right. You <laughs> know, Thou shalt never touch that. I think to get to a place where you regularly tear down and rebuild a SQL Server, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's not a small thing. Yeah. Uh, not an easy thing to do. You, you still have this requirement to protect the data in that mm -hmm. process. Right. A couple other yeah. things actually on that. One of the other things we notice, and as a trend, so we're trying to get people to open their minds to, is testing the database. Don't sure. just test your application. So uh, we've actually got a whole bunch of open source solutions for that now oh, yeah? that people should check out. Yeah. One which Eric uh, has helped actually contribute to was Slacker. 
literally Slacker if you do database. It's a Ruby-based testing framework okay. uh, built on RSpec. And it's yep. really great because it's uh, it lets you actually run everything locally client-side in a transaction. We'll roll it all back. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to all of these things of making sure, you know, taking it out of the ivory tower, yeah. being able to prove to the operations person, look, you helped us write these tests. You were very confident that these things run the way we expect. And here's our new version. And yeah, we've got a full test suite that actually tests the data and right. verifies it right here here, you know, try it out yourself. It helps get people comfortable moving it out of that. Well, that's yeah. my, that's as good. an operations guy, that's my concern, right? It's like, how do I know this isn't going to break things? Like, mm -hmm. show me what you've got. Mm -hmm. Just writing tests for stored procedures, mm -hmm. much <laughs> yeah. less the database itself. Like, right. I just, I'm fascinated by how did we get to that place where it's like, you're knocking out green lights mm -hmm. before you're going even to pre-prod. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we think that's a great place to start. The the two best we know are Slacker, and there's one called T SQL T. The downsides of that that are that it it's, uh, requires you installing custom assemblies because uh, it's a .NET based one on the server, and mm. so we kind of like the RSpec one a little bit more now Slacker because yeah. it all runs client side and it just leaves everything clean. So again, for for the ops person, you don't have to say, oh, but it's different. You're like, nope, it's the exact same one. We're yeah. just running everything in a transaction, and you'll be happy. Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah. As soon as you say I need to install this on your server, that's a big old. <laughs> I have a yeah. It just says no. Any questions? Because I don't actually need to talk. I'm just <laughs> yeah. going to show you the sign. <laughs> Move along. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. So it, it works pretty great. And then yeah, and then again with all of those, just getting into daily builds and getting the database part of that. That's why we kind of mentioned in our bios database DevOps. What yeah. that is DevOps mm. for a database. It means mm. continuously deploying with SSDT every time you push. You know, being able to run unit tests again with these kind of approaches. Yep every time you push and then as you move it towards the staging thing continuously having an integration you know every day mm. and running kind of more heavyweight tests on it so by the time it gets there you should have the apps people be willing to trust actually your scripts ideally and that's actually the other thing is much more secure than trying to have somebody sure. manually push every time that yeah. goes much more wrong yeah no yeah. if you're using a word doc you're doing it wrong oh right? my who would do that well it's a in the old gene kim line is you know one of those fathers of devops types is this one source of the truth mm -hmm. yeah Yep. And yeah. so if it's really going to be one source of truth, it has to include the database. Mm -hmm. That is part of the truth. Yeah. So I think it's a great challenge uh, to, you know, you know, recognize DevOps as a journey. It's like when some point along this path, we're going to pick up the database and take it along for the ride mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. It may not be the first thing, but it's <laughs> got to be one of the things. I think it's right. a, it's a, a great challenge. I appreciate you. Your folks have put a lot of time into the tooling Definitely. to just make it. It's we're not having to invent anything mm -hmm. to be able to treat our databases that way. Mm. So what's coming up? What's new? What's next? on your radar. All right. So our team uh, uh, is uh, uh, focusing on the multi-OS supports. Mm -hmm. so, okay. Uh, if you take a look at SQL CMD and then the BCP, that's kind of a you know, well-known name mm. for a long time in Windows side. Now, all those uh, CLI tools are multi-OS. Mm -hmm. There's two regions. One is the, uh, it is a, uh, uh, we are going, we are supporting the multi OS, mm -hmm. but also those CLIs are core for automation. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. so that's why we are focusing on that one. And, uh, DACFX that uh, is right now supporting the Windows-based dev environment. So DACFX is the engine oh, underneath engine those SSDT. SQL Server Data Tools database project. Okay. So it's the engine, and it's it's its own API, so you can run it anywhere with just no install, just X copy. Interesting. Right? And uh, we are plan we have a plan to make it the multi-OS version. So uh, if you go with the .NET Core, then it can run on Linux, uh, Mac, and then the Windows all together. Nice. Right. So that is one, and uh, we are. Also, uh, we planned, we released MS SQL for Visual Studio Code that is uh, kind of targeting dev uh, persona. 
Mm. Uh, we also work on the ops persona based tools mm-hmm. that works on the multi OS as well. So yeah. uh, that is the two big things that uh, uh, we are working. Must work to see and, that. And feature, while, yeah. while we're here, we'll plug. We've added some new uh, CLI tools just to make life easier as well. Mm-hmm. So one of which is called MS SQL hyphen scripter, MS SQL scripter, very uh, original. Yeah, right. But it makes it very easy to script out your data and uh, your schema and your data from wherever and, and move it over. And That's it gives great. you nice fine grained control over that. You can actually do a lot of that with the DACFX APIs as well. But mm. MS SQL scripter is cross platform right now. It works really great. And it, awesome. it took a bunch of stuff that was formerly in SSMS just as GUI only which is right. really not useful to people no. and pushing sense. it down so we've yeah. been pushing a lot of stuff down into that command line layer and API layer so you can just build up scripts on top of it PowerShell it. whatever you want oh and a lot of those are also open source so if people don't ha- have a problem they can either fix it or just open an issue and they can point to the line of code where it's I fake. can't tell you nice. how many times and th- there has been at least one where I've <laughs> been on my phone and I've wanted to make a change in a SQL server. <laughs> like, and the only thing I had available was my iPhone, right? I right. didn't have a laptop near me and, oh, my God, some some piece of data has to change or whatever. I want SM- SSMS on my phone, you know? But <laughs> obviously, I could, with open source tools, someday build a, window, a Xamarin Forms app or even have a little command line or something that I can just go do that. I mean, you know, that's not a, that's a serious edge case. Sure. Like I said, there's at least one. No, actually, <laughs> you can, you can to do, do it that. today. So there is an open source SQL tools service that is uh, kind of a, uh, the connectivity layer for MS SQL for Visual Studio Code. Well, okay, I believe you're right because <laughs> I did look out in the App Store for yeah. something to do it, and there were several <laughs> options. And after I installed and jumped yeah. the fourth one, I was like, ah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm glad. Cool. I'm glad to hear that that's happening. Yes. Very cool. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for talking to us. And it's always great to hear what you're doing. And uh, again, our guests are Kevin Kanan and Eric Kang. Thank you, gentlemen. It was great. Thank you. Very, very nice to meet you all. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a